Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This is Romans 13, 8 through 14. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the, lo- for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, Thanks to uh, Katie for... Turned out that Kelly was having surgery, making everything happen. Kelly, Matt, get gold stars for being here the day after you get out of the hospital. Way to go. And Danielle, thanks for, um, for coming, coming back and helping us out. Uh, I, I think I've told Danielle this. I'll never forget her. We were in the old building, and Danielle had been, I don't know, around the church for a year or so at the time, but Danielle was kind of quiet. And so Pat told me she was auditioning for worship team. She just came in like a weekday afternoon or something like that. And I was, I was outside the doors, like listening. I had my ear to the crack between the doors to hear like, wow, can, like this will be interesting. Girl can sing, y'all. Uh, so it's good to, have, good to have her back for a week. Okay, the, um, I don't know if you noticed this, the lottery this week got up to $1.7 billion dollars. Did anybody else buy a lottery ticket this week? Come on, let's be honest. Um, we bought one, a couple, uh, even though I'm convinced the lottery would ruin any of us. Um, and I thought about that a bit after the fact. What is the first thing you would spend money on if you won the lottery? Taxes? taxes? <laughs> well, true. Yeah, you would spend a lot of money on taxes, but it'd be worth it. Um, what, what, what is the first thing you spend money on? Pay off, Pay off your mortgage. Pay off your house. Buy a house for Pharaoh's daughter. An in-ground pool. Yes. I, th- I thought I would, I would pay off debt. Um, we, don't, we don't have egregious amounts of debt. I think we have fairly standard American debt, but like I want out of it. You know what I mean? I would pay off debt and I would put enough money away that I, that I wouldn't have debt again. 
like for normal things and that my family um, wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have debt. You know, we've got we've got lawyers and doctors in here and people with advanced degrees that that probably accrued a lot of debt to get there. Um, I'll never forget. There's a quote from a, a basketball player named Patrick Ewing. They were he got caught on a mic years ago and they were talking about how much basketball players make, and he said, "Well, we make a lot of money, but we spend a lot of money too." I found that a lot funnier than you guys did. Uh, and so we got people that are an advanced profession. You know what I mean? They're going to make a lot of money, but they cost a lot of money to get there. And I can't imagine the weight of that debt. Um, and so I imagine it'd be nice to be out from under that debt. And so I would, I would like to never be in debt um, again. Now, Paul opens this section with, that, with a picture of the weight of debt. And what it does to us. We're in this run of passages, getting towards the end of Romans, where he's talking about, starting really in chapter 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and what it looks like in different areas of your life to have your mind renewed by the gospel. So how you think about yourself, and then how you think about the people close to you, and then how you think about the people you're at odds with, your enemies. Last week, Dan talked about how we think about the people in authority over us and what the gospel says about that. And that passage ended with this, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. So God's put authority in place over us. We owe them taxes, we owe them taxes, pay your taxes. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything. Like, get out of debt in all different ways. Stay out of debt. Except there's one area of your life where you can be in debt. And he says to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, the way that um, just a couple different commentators said this, the, the better way to translate this might be, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. That's how he's painting it. Like the, the, the love that we owe to each other is a debt. Um, a church father origin said, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. So there's supposed to be like a weight that comes along with that. You were to live as though you always owed a debt of love to the people that are around you. And that, that picture works for me because owing, owing something to someone changes the way that I, that I feel about them and the way that I interact with them. Right? So if you owe somebody money, what do you do? Yeah, you avoid them. Like until you have the money, you don't really want to interact with them much. I borrowed Ryan Stutzman's uh, chainsaw a while ago, and I kept forgetting to bring it to church on Sundays. I got a few things going on on Sundays, but I just kept forgetting to put it in the car and get it here. Um, and this is how long ago it was. I borrowed the chainsaw to like hack up the hedges in the front of our house to the point where they had no leaves on them anymore. My kids are like, why did you kill the hedges? I'm like, I didn't kill the hedges. They'll grow back probably eventually. Well, the hedges have grown back and Ryan still didn't have his chainsaw back. Like that's how long it had been. And so every week at church, what did I do when I saw Ryan? I avoided him completely. Ryan and I haven't talked in like three months. Uh, 
I finally got him his chainsaw back. I'm, I'm bad at paying for a fantasy football league. Josh Mitchell is our commissioner. I keep forgetting to pay him. I did this year earlier, but I just avoid him um, because I owe him, and I don't like that. Like, it changes the way you interact. Now, obviously, this is different. My point isn't avoid people because you owe them a debt of love. Don't look anybody in the eye uh, when you're walking out today. That's not it. But my point is that being in debt to someone changes your relationship. Like, there's some connection. And when you're out of debt, like, there's a freedom to that. Um, But this debt is always supposed to keep us connected, and there's never, like, there's never a freedom. I mean, there is a freedom in loving each other, but, like, there's some, there's something that goes along with that that's supposed to be different than every other area um, in our life. And it's, it's different, like, when you owe someone, like, debt, it's because you're, they've given, they've done something for you, and you need to balance out the scales um, to make things level, you know what I mean? That's, you're not leveling out any scales here. You don't love people because they're lovable. You don't love people because they loved you so well. Uh, we love people because God told us, like, this is what we're made for. Um, and he goes on in the passage, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, which is a lot, any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this echoes what Jesus said. Uh, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, just to recap in Romans, we don't need, like Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. We are not under the law anymore. Paul said in chapter 7, likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ. Um, we're not held to the standard of the law. Um, that's not what we're judged by. We're judged by Christ's performance against the standard of the law because he took our place. But we've died to the law so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, like, the law wasn't bad. The law wasn't the problem. We were the problem. And the law made obvious the extent to which we were the problem. The law is still good, um, and this is, the, this is the fruit we were meant to bear. The law was a set of guidelines that really display how do, you, how do you love the people around you. And if you love the people around you, you won't cheat on them. If you love the people around you, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to kill them. Uh, you're not going to talk ill about them. You're not going to live in a constant state of jealousy towards them if you love them. You get this one thing right, and you get all these other things right too, so live like you're in this constant debt of love to the people around you. And then he goes on and says this, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so this is not Paul saying, um, Jesus is going to come back next week or next month or next year. When he says, you know the time, there's a couple different words he could use for time. One of them is the chronological time, which may indicate he's coming back now. Another one is the kind of time, and that's the word he uses. You know the kind of time that we're in now. And he alludes to this darkness and light. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Jesus has called us out of a kingdom of darkness, and he's called us into a kingdom of light. And that's the time that we're in. Jesus said the kingdom is near. The kingdom is, it's all around you. It's available to us now. And Paul is saying, choose to live in that kingdom. 
Uh, Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been saved from sin, but we've been saved into something else. We've been saved into a life in Christ, which is the life of loving the people around us. And he's, he's, he's calling out an urgency in that, that our lives are a blip, and many of the things that we spend so much time and energy on aren't going to last. And so he's saying it's time to wake up from that sleep and live for the things that matter. He says salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, which is technically always true. And salvation meaning the fullness of our salvation. Um, and it's always true because we're not getting any younger, right? We're getting older. Uh, I found myself the last few years using the phrase, um, age is undefeated more and more. And I think it's because we're getting older and I have more context to use that phrase with you guys. Um, our parents are getting even older. And so a lot of us are dealing with aging parents and we're using it for them. Um, and I found myself also, even as I say age is undefeated, something in the back of my mind resisting that and thinking, but I can beat it. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I'm having, I have, a heart, uh, I, have to, I have my heart valve replaced again, and it's four weeks from tomorrow. So that's um, coming up soon. And I mentioned this, and my anxiety level on that on a scale of one to 10 is about a two. My irritation level is about an eight. Uh, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, but this part of the reason I've been thinking I can beat it is because for 17 years since I had it the last time, I've known I'm going to have it again in 15 or 20 years. I think about the age my kids will be when I'm going to have it again. And, and I've always had this thought in my mind, like, I want to be in good shape. And this is how I've worded it in my mind, because I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to be there when my sons walk down the aisle. There's a little thing in our family about this. It's just an easier way to think about it. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle, because I'm not going to walk my sons down the aisle. And, um, and so I, that's how I trick myself into thinking, okay, you got to stay in good shape. you got to eat well. you got to pay attention to this stuff. And I've done that and feel like I'm in great shape going into this surgery. But part of that is why I think you can beat it. Like, you're doing great. The actuaries, as it turns out, don't think I can beat it. Um, they don't think I can beat it to the extent that I can't get life insurance anymore. This is my only anxiety. If something catastrophic happens, set up a GoFundMe and be generous to my family, okay? That's my only anxiety with the thing. Um, but we're all, we're all getting older. <laughs> and our parents are getting older still. I, I read stories about, you know, celebrities and important people dying. They're all my parents' age. I'm at the point of thinking, like, what are you guys still doing here? You know, like, they're just, it's, it's all moving, and, uh, and Paul is saying, man, the time is short. The time is short. And so be urgent about the right things today. And the right thing to be urgent about is loving the people around you. In another passage, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I thought, how many religious leaders, pastors have we elevated that apparently weren't good at, at love at all, like we're really bad at it? Or just how many eloquent, flashy people do we elevate in society that, whose personal life is a complete mess, but we keep putting them on a pedestal, and, and they're not good at love at all. 
if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So smart people, prophetic people who understand the times, maybe outside of a religious context, who understand all mysteries and knowledge, people in science who we elevate totally, right? But have no idea their capacity at love and don't care about it. Um, removing mountains would imply power. Do we value power above love? If I give, if I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's hard. Sincere, committed, sacrificial people, people doing the right re- re- things, but apparently for the wrong reasons. Paul goes on the next paragraph, and that is, the love is patient and kind, it is not jealous, does not boast. I'll come back to that. And then the next paragraph is, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's why it's like a debt that will go on forever, because love is the thing that is going to last. Jesus said to his disciples at the end, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Not because you can quote your Bible a lot, not because you vote the right way, not because you're really righteous, but because you love one another. That's how people, that's what will mark you as followers of Jesus. Galatians. Paul talks, and in Romans, he's told us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, and he says the fruit of that spirit, and the first one he lists, is love. Like, that's how the work of that spirit is going to manifest in our lives, that we will love people well. Is love a priority for you? Or is love like a like something you take for granted or background noise? Is love something you work on? I find that to be a hard question. Um, And I'm going to ask some questions that I asked myself this week to evaluate that. And I don't think we're going to get an F on this. You know what I mean? But I think we might get a C. Uh, And I think Paul wants us to bump our grade up. Um, how, How do you know what your priorities are in your life? I'm sure those were great answers. Ooh, yeah. Your fear, what you fear losing the most. Mm. What else did you guys say? What? Yeah, where you spend your money. Where you spend your time. Pardon me? Yeah, what you focus on. Um, I think where your emotional energy just drifts to, you know, tells you something about what's really important um, down deep, you know, what you, what you daydream about, the top five apps you use on your phone, um, although none of your apps are so useful, like they're all kind of useless, you know, but like what things we, our attention just is directed to, magnetized to, um, where you direct your thoughts to help you fall asleep. Or when you wake up in the middle of the night, where you direct your thoughts to help you get back to sleep. 
probably tell you something about your priorities, or maybe the things that, you, that your mind automatically goes to when you wake up in the middle of the night tell you what your priorities are. And the place you direct your mind probably tells you where your hope is to resolve those anxieties, you know. Um, but I started thinking, like, do I fall asleep thinking, does the thing that settles me down, is it, man, I'm, I'm well-loved and I love the people around me well? Maybe it's kind of a, related to the things, but it's not the, like, focus of it, you know? When you think about your plans and goals for the next month or the next year or the next season in your life, what types of things do you think about? Um, what you want, things you want to accomplish, where you want to live, things you want to buy, where you want to travel. Um, but I, I don't know that people often write down a goal of, like, I want to love the people around me better than I did in the last week or month or year or season. If you have kids, your plans for them certainly dominate those thoughts. But even so, like, I would... I would ask you to evaluate your plans for your children and what's your hopes for them. And you want them to be self-sustaining, off the dole, uh, successful, happy, and love is implied there. But do you consciously think, you know what, when my kid is 40, I want them to be able to love the people around them really well. And that would be the most important thing that they could do. That's, I find that to be a hard question. Like I said, I don't think we're getting... F's. I think we're getting, I think we might get C's. Um, I mean, my kids are thriving and I'm most grateful for that. That does get me to sleep at night. Family's probably most closely tied to the priority of love, but you can have a good family and not love well, right? That can be a, a, like a duty or an accomplishment or even some type of status. I was listening to someone talk the other day and he was asking the question, how much do we, of what we do as a parent, do we do for ourselves and not for our kids? Which is a hard question. Um, but a question worth asking. Similarly, work, like you can express love for people, like love can be a priority in your work. You can think, man, I want to really love the people that I work with well. Um, and you can make it a part of that priority, but it's not easy to do and it's not going to be on your job description, you know? And I, a lot of the things that direct my emotional energy are so trivial that I don't even want to bring them up. Like, they're geared towards a dopamine rush, you know? Um, they're the teams that I follow winning or, or learning new things or something about my own health or planning the next vacation or debts being paid off or savings being built up. They're not bad things, but they're not best things. I thought, would you be content if you had a lot of love in your life but not a lot of stuff or not a lot of status or not a lot of security or even not a lot of excitement, but you had a lot of love, would you be good with that? Um, I read a book years ago where they talked about poverty, but they talked about it not just in a physical, financial dimension, but said there's four dimensions of poverty. All we think about is financial, but you can be financially rich and emotionally poor and relationally poor and spiritually poor. And that's true. Um, and, and we, our country is probably as rich as any country has ever been financially. But emotionally and relationally and spiritually, not. Um, 
where are you in that exercise? Uh, like I said, I don't think for most of us this exercise is super painful. I don't think most of us are working 80 to 100 hours a week just so we can get the next promotion or the next title or the next raise or the next house or whatever it is. We have balance. Our family matters. Our friends matter. Our church matters. People matter. But I think Paul is honing our thoughts and our energy towards what matters most and away from what matters least because he knows we've, we are constantly pulled in the wrong direction. So his last little bit in this passage is, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And what that made me think is that it's easier to love ourselves than it is to love the people around us. It's easier to, to seek out the next thrill, like, and we're pushed towards that all the time, than it is to commit ourselves to the people around us. And, I mean, orgies and drunkenness, like, I don't know, you might have a little bit too much to drink now and again. I don't think a lot of people are participating in orgies. There are probably some sexual things people ought not be doing, but they are visual, visceral pleasures that we seek after. There's probably a whole bunch of other things that could fit in that category, Sensuality is a word that describes someone who's not only given to immorality, but is incapable of feeling shame. And I do think there are large sections of our society right now that are incapable of feeling shame, have, have deadened themselves to it. Quarreling and jealousy describes someone who cannot stand being surpassed and grudges others their successes and positions. And I think we're pushed towards that. I thought about what... What personalities right now are, are elevated in our culture? Who's elevated? Who do we elevate? Yeah, that's the first one I wrote down is Taylor Swift. What's Taylor Swift good at? Yeah. Is Taylor Swift good at love? We have no idea. I think the evidence would be probably not. I don't know. It's probably not high on her list because she's got so much other stuff going on. Who else is elevated? This isn't hard. What was that? Was it? D oh, Coach Prime. There's a fair question. I don't know what Coach Prime is good at. I mean, I thought of Elon Musk. Do we hear about him all the time? Is he good at love? Depends how you define it there. Uh, he has a lot of children. I mean, no, he's not. That guy's a train wreck. You know what I mean? He's really good at what he does. Um, but we elevate we, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Like, holy cow. Uh, Jeff Bezos. Like, we elevate the wrong things, you know? When's the last person we've elevated someone because they love people well? Mother Teresa. Can you think of another? I thought about Billy Graham. We, yeah, he's, I'm sure he loved people well. I'm not sure he was elevated for that, but fair enough, you know. Uh, we just don't, like this isn't the direction that we trend in. And Paul is telling us that. And so you're going to swim upstream to make this a priority. Honestly, I don't love this passage. <laughs> I'm not great at it in ways that are hard for me to understand and they're problematic. I, we've been through this. I'm not a naturally affectionate people person and I think there's more to that underneath the surface. It doesn't mean I don't love well. 
But it's hard for me to, I mean, I realize I don't think about it as a priority the way that I think Paul would have us do it. And it's ambiguous and esoteric to me, and so I'm not sure what it means practically to prioritize it in my life. I thought about it. Like, it, what does love look like? And I think it looks like time. I think it looks like attention, engagement in that time. I think it looks like affection, like letting people know that you love them. Concern, empathy, um, I think it looks like service and sacrifice. I think it looks like trust. Um, are we, do we value those things? I thought about, like, what, one of the questions I asked myself, or what times in your life would you go back? To, if you had a time machine, you could go back for a week, a couple weeks in your life, where would you go back to and, um, and what I ended up thinking was, I would not, there was a time a few years when I was in my early 20s, wasn't married, had some expendable income, corporate job. I wouldn't go back there. You know what I mean? Like, that's probably when I had the most freedom. I wouldn't go, I think that's what young people are seeking today. I wouldn't go back to that time. I'd go back to, I'd go back to before my parents got divorced to see what my household was like. Because in my mind, that's an idyllic time, and it's full of love. It probably wasn't because my parents got divorced, you know, but like in my mind, it was, and I'd want to go back there. I thought about going back to college, because college is this unique, you're so close to people, you do life with people, you see each other all the time. It's fantastic. How many people would go back to college for a week? Uh, I would love it. And we talk about that now, like being able to do life on life and how it's not possible because we live so far away. And I did think for a minute, we probably didn't have to live so far away. There's probably an alternate reality where we were all like, isn't this enough? Where we thought maybe we should all live in the same neighborhood. And did we think about that for a second the last time we bought a house? I thought about the early days of church because there's an all-inness to it. Um, I thought about my kids being little. Before Michael went to college a few years ago, I told my kids I'm going to get a Saturday morning where I get all your time. And we went to Pullen Park, rode the trains. They were too big for the boats. Uh, so we rode the train. We went to the Museum of Natural History. No, science. The dinosaur one. The one with the flying dinosaurs and the thing. Because when they were little, it was free. And I used to take them there all the time. Um, just to hang out. And then we went to Krispy Kreme and watched them make donuts. Because there's something fantastic about that. There's something really hard about that time when they were little. Um, but there was something great about it, you know? Um, how do we give ourselves to those things on a day-to-day -day basis? To, those, to make those experiences matter. Paul, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, the part I didn't read, says, Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Man, I can't, it's hard to think of a description that would run against what's going on in our culture right now more than that description. I thought love doesn't give you a dopamine rush, but love is always worth it in the end. 
um, could you ask yourself at the end of each day for the next week, have I loved well today? Riskier, could you ask the people that you're supposed to be loving well at the end of each day, have I loved you well today? One of the questions I, I thought about this week was, what comes to mind when you think about uh, heaven? You know, because I think love is the first thing that comes to mind. Like, it's love will flow freely in heaven in a way it doesn't here. I think there will be wonder, and I think there will be work, um, but I think there will be love. One of the things I thought that struck me is that I don't think we'll think about the same things we think about when you think about winning the lottery. Winning the lottery would be, we think, it's its own form of heaven. I did read a story where the guy that won the $2 billion um, a year ago, maybe, he bought, did anybody see this story? Because they said he's making financial mistakes. He bought a $4.5 million house near where he, where he was in California, which probably means he got a 1,500-square-foot split level in California, you know? Um, and then he bought a $40 million huge house that overlooks L.A. And I thought, you know what? Anytime I think about winning the lottery, I don't think I'm ever going to buy a big house until right now, and I might. Uh, and you guys can all come. It would be a blast, you know, because uh, that place was awesome. But I don't, you don't think about that, even about heaven. Jesus tells us, I'm going to prepare a place for you, like you're going to have a place, maybe a house, I guess. Uh, I don't think about that. We think about people, and we think about love, and we think about the love of God, and maybe it's hard because we're, so, we're hard to love sometimes. And we talk it up so much, but it seems like we value it so little. And Paul is saying at the end of like a, at a capstone of, of a portion of this part of his letter, like, man, don't, this is the only answer. Don't give up on this. Um, I've, been reading, I've been rereading a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I would highly recommend. Um, it's 30, 35 years old. And, um, and it, I read a passage, was thinking this anyway, like, we won't love those around us well until we're overflowing with the love that Jesus has for us. The gospel makes this possible. And I thought a lot of us are probably harder on ourselves than Jesus is. And in a weird way, that probably keeps us from loving the people around us well. So I'm going to read a little bit from this. After that, we're going to take um, communion. Ken and Mike are going to be up here, and um, they will be offering you communion. And um, he tells us to do this in remembrance of him, and it is our reminder of the love that he has for us. So be reminded of that. Um, but I'm going to read a, an extended bit from this, and I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. And pray that these words um, come from the Lord through Brennan Manning. And this is a little long. He says, sadly, many today are not experiencing what Paul calls the glorious freedom of the children of God. The basic problem is that we accept grace in theory, but not we deny it in practice. Living by grace rather than law leads us out of the house of fear and into the house of love. In love there can be no fear, but fear is driven out by perfect love. Because to fear is to expect punishment. This is from 1 John, and anyone who is afraid is still imperfect in love. 
He says, while we profess our faith in God's unconditional love, many of us still live in fear. Henry Nouwen remarks, look at the many if questions we raise. What am I going to do if I do not find a spouse? If I do not find a house, a job, a friend, a benefactor, what am I going to do if they fire me, if I get sick, if an accident happens, if I lose my friends, if my marriage doesn't work out, if a war breaks out, what if tomorrow the weather is bad, the buses are on strike, or an earthquake happens, what if someone steals my money, breaks into my house, rapes my daughter, or kills me? Once these questions guide our lives, we take out a second mortgage in the house of fear. Jesus says simply, this is from John 15, make your home in me as I make mine in you. Home is not a heavenly mansion in the afterlife, but a safe place right in the midst of our anxious world. Home is that sacred space, external or internal, where we don't have to be afraid. Where we're confident of hospitality and love. In our society, we have many homeless people sleeping not only in streets and shelters or in welfare hotels, but vagabonds who are in flight who never come home to themselves. They seek a safe place through alcohol or drugs or security and success, incompetence, security and friends and pleasure and notoriety and knowledge or even a little religion. They become strangers to themselves, people who have an address but who are never at home, who never hear the voice of love or experience the freedom of God's children. To those of us in flight who are afraid to turn around lest we run into ourselves, Jesus says, you have a home. I am your home. Claim me as your home. You will find it to be the intimate place where I have found my home. It's right where you are in your innermost being in your heart. It's his approval that accounts. And making our home in Jesus as he makes us in his leads to creative listening has it crossed your mind that I'm proud that you've accepted the gift of faith I offered you? Proud that you freely chose me after I had chosen you as your friend and Lord? Proud that with all your warts and wrinkles you haven't give up, given up? Proud that you believe in me enough to try and try again? Are you aware how I appreciate you for wanting me? I want you to know how grateful I am when you pause to smile and comfort a child who's lost her way. I'm grateful for the hours you devote to learning more about me, for the word of encouragement you passed on to your burnout pastor, I'm not burnout, for, for the visit to the shut-in, for your tears to those on the, for those on the margins. What you did to them, you did to me. Alas, I'm sad when you do not believe that I've totally forgiven you or feel uncomfortable approaching me. Father, help us to find refuge in the love that you have for us because the love that you have for us, your love, is going to be um, the source of the love that we would have for the people around us. And I'm thankful, for, um, I'm thankful for the people that you put in my life. I'm thankful for a loving family, Lord. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful that people will spend 30 to 45 minutes in the lobby after church communicating how much they care for each other. I'm thankful for the people that have responded to Kelly Manley having to have an emergency surgery and the love that that comes out of, Lord. I'm thankful for so many ways that we see um, a love for each other. God, I pray you would help us to put the value on that, that it deserves. That you would help us to see that so many things that we put so much weigh on weigh nothing 
in your sight. And that, and that love that we have for each other, um, that we don't put much weight on here, you have tremendous weight on it, God. And may that direct our hearts towards you and may give us the power of your spirit to help us to, to love on each other well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.